Today, I'm talking to Paul Su. He's a uh, serial CTO and founder, currently building Space Station Labs, a 500K plus per year solo dev agency. Paul, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Ben. Thank you so much for having me. Cool. So the first question I have here is just curious to know, you know, what made you get started as a solo dev agency and why did you choose to go primarily solo? So like a lot of other people, I kind of just fell into the consulting, the agency world. I was building a product after I left my full-time employment back around 2016. To supplement some of my income, I took contracts on the side. So right around the pandemic, I my startup, my first couple startups went under because you know we, we couldn't find product market fit. A lot of the problems that startups had. But my contracting, my agency took off. There was a lot of uh, jobs to be done during the pandemic, a lot of Web3 crypto eco space. So I spent a lot of time in that, but I, I kind of just kept improving the process. I kept putting myself out there looking for contracts and I scaled it up to about 500K a year. The reason that I went at it as a solo dev agency owner is, well, most, most like to be completely honest is because I didn't, I was never good at trusting other people to do the work. I, I was a perfectionist. I, I spent a lot of time kind of uh, refactoring, reviewing my own code. And for me to scale horizontally, that means I would have to drastically change my process to hire somebody to work with them. And, and that's something that I'm continuously trying to improve as well. Yeah, that's kind of like the main reason I, I, I really loved to figure out the process of things. And that's where I kind of focus most of my attention into. Got it. And is that the vision that you have still? Or do you think you might change that in the near future? Because I think I saw a post from you explaining how you actually hired a salesperson for your team. Correct. Yeah. So I do have a contracted salesperson who helps me do a lot of the outbound sales process. The reason for that is Right around the 250000 mark, I was realizing I was doing 60% of my time with sales instead of actually doing the thing, doing development. So I hired the person to take over that kind of work for me. I, I see the solo part as in I'm not scaling horizontally to hire other devs to take the contract for me. Typically, that is a way for you to scale the agency is by either going upstream selling enterprise, uh, selling higher ticket items, or scaling horizontally to more developers. Do I see that staying the same for the future? So I actually talked to somebody, uh, an agency founder, uh, a couple of weeks ago. They explained to me the life cycle of an agency, something that I actually had in my mind, but never quite put it into words. That, that effect is called like the, the negative flywheel of an agency. What that means is when you try to scale an agency beyond a certain point, the only way for you to do that is by either lowering the quality or upping the price. Both of those things are actually negative effects initially. For example, if you lower the quality, that's kind of self-explanatory. You hire more developers, maybe your quality drops, you lose some of that trust with your existing existing, uh, clients, right? So you might turn some clients. That is something that I'm still trying to figure out. I don't think a lot of agencies have that figured out. So it's kind of the reason why you see a lot of agencies after a certain point, they go under. 
So it's a tough problem to solve. What would you say are the biggest differences in in mindset around trying to stay solo versus how I would imagine a lot of other people are going into it as they would have at an earlier stage brought on the other devs, like like you said? At the end of the day, I think it's just people wanting either time, more time back, or they want to make more revenue. That's kind of like the sole reason for you to scale out, right? Like to, to hire more people is so that you can do less work or you can build them out for, for additional revenue. I think something that I've consciously made a decision of is I'm happy with just myself. I'm happy with a cap. I actually took majority of this year off and stepped away from the agency because at the beginning of the year, I looked at my pipeline. It didn't look very good. I would have had to work twice as hard to land those same deals, the same amount of deals and uh, stayed stayed the course of, say, hitting $500,000 a year or more uh, this year. So I kind of just completely stepped away. If I had people under me on my payroll, maybe I would have kind of worked extra hard, worked twice as hard to keep them around for as long as I can. I, I have a lot of respect for agency owners that does that. It's, it's a completely different game. It's just something that I consciously decided to not do. At your busiest when you're really hitting those high numbers, what does your average day look like? Are you getting any sleep or are you, <laughs> or is it actually surprisingly manageable? I think the thing that I figured out how to do is that process. So typically at my busiest, I try to work with one to three clients at the same time. Typically they're project-based. So I have a lot of flexibility of when and how exactly I do the work. But even then I try to minimize a lot of time heavy work, for example, like meetings, right? I, I try to minimize the amount of meetings that I do because in a meeting, if I'm talking, uh, sitting there, I can't be multitasking. I can't be doing anything else. And also it breaks up your day. It, it really kind of eats up much more than whatever the time allocated for the meeting is. So I, I've introduced a lot of like these kind of pricing strategies, even like uh, strategies to get out of these meetings and things that takes a lot of time and focus only on the work and delivering value for the, for, for the clients. Lucky you have uh, enough time for things like podcasts instead of getting stuck on a, on a meeting marathon. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. So I appreciate that. Podcast <laughs> is an investment. Podcast is extremely high leverage of work. I'm all about the high leverage work. Absolutely. So you mentioned there a couple of times and you packaged packaged your work What's your approach to a typical engagement that gives you that leverage? Is it just the fact that they're project-based or is there a bit more magic to it? Yeah. So I figured out or I realized that selling my service based on hourly work has a cap, right? You're, you're capped by the number of hours that you can bill in a day. And typically when you sell yourself as a hourly employee or hourly contractor, there's a lot of negotiation. There's a lot of pushback on how much you can charge per hour. So I switched over to project-based billing because at the end of the day, you have to, the way that you maximize your revenue is by delivering value. I typically try to aim for 10% of whatever value I'm delivering to the client. I'll give you a concrete example, right? One of my best projects, I build around $280,000 a year well, for around eight months worth of work. 
very little negotiation went into that price point because I realized that my client was billing myself out for around three and a half million dollars to their clients. So I knew that the end value I'm delivering is around three and a half million dollars. And it's less than 10% of what I'm actually billing them. So that is one way for you to leverage your work is by truly understanding what value you're delivering to your clients and charge around 10% for it. Wow. What did that conversation look like? Basically asking for that 10% was it, hey, I, I know you're charging this. I think this fee is reasonable. Yeah. So there's, there's some nuance that goes into it, but it never hurts to ask your clients directly. So that specific conversation, I did a lot of uh, research. I understood who their end clients was. It's Their end client was uh, a fan company, a major fan company. And I understood that they did almost eight months worth of planning work up until the point that they hired when you're investing that much time and when your end client is such a big company, most likely your project size is going to be well into the seven figures, right? You're probably not going to spend a month worth of work getting not, uh, not being paid to work on like a $100,000 uh, project. So in that sense, I kind of just had a gut feeling, a check of what the project is worth. And when I tossed the number out, it, it just seemed right for everybody. Wow. Have you ever had a, like a, a serious negative pushback? And if so, how did you turn that around? I get pushed back all the time. It's actually, I, I personally think that it's a hallmark of good negotiation is that the first, the first um, number or the first ask that you get ends in a no. That's actually the way you should negotiate. If you get a yes, that probably means that you left something on the table. If you get a no, that's when you should start negotiating. So the way that I handle it is I got really used to people telling me no. And just just for the record, I'd, I'd love to know the name of your dog in the background. So people listening can get a bit of context. I think they need to join the conversation here. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. He's making a lot of noises right now. Uh, my dog's name is no Bruno. He's, uh, he's a two-year-old pug. He's got a lot of personality and makes a lot of noises. <laughs> Very cute. Bruno is is welcome. So I'll, I'll be sure to add a credit note for Bruno. Cool. So you expect the no. How do you typically respond to something like that? Because my, from my experience, I'm I'm often very afraid of the no. I try to avoid mm-hmm. in a pricing yeah. negotiation. I I rather go for something what I think they would more easily accept versus a price they I knew that that I think that they would push back on thinking that I would maybe lose too many deals that way. Yeah, yeah. It's actually a common misconception for you to lowball your offer, right? Like naturally people think that if they lowball the number, then they will get more yeses. That's actually never, that's actually a, a dangerous misconception. At the end of the day, what you're trying to get at is you want both parties, yourself included, to feel like you're walking away from a deal that both of you got a good deal. If you lowball your offer, one of the parties, say your client, had all the up, upper hand. Maybe you got the deal done, but you're going to feel like you left something on the table. You're going to feel negatively. And to them, it's actually, it's actually probably already within a range that they had in their mind. So it, it, 
maybe to them it feels like, oh, I actually didn't get a lot of satisfaction out of this conversation, out of this negotiation. So it's actually beneficial for you to get an initial no and start the negotiation process, build the relationship through that process, and so that you can both build trust and also come across as somebody that knows their knows their stuff, right? Like uh, the another danger part of you lowballing your offer is that you can come across as you don't know what you're talking about, and that is probably the worst thing that you can come across as uh, when you're selling a service to somebody. That's an interesting point in that it's an opportunity to build trust and further engagement by starting that process um, yeah, rather than bullying it. Exactly, right? Like it, it, negotiation is one of the oldest things that humans do. We barter, we negotiate, we go to the markets to, to figure out prices. So like it's very important. It is actually ingrained into our behavior to build trust by negotiating price. Yeah, and then you mentioned that you might be scared to to do that process, to do that negotiation process. Yeah, like any new skills, like learning how to swim or learning how to ski, it just takes practice. What is something that you you typically say when a when a prospect goes, ah, that's too expensive? <laughs> yeah, so that specific response could be could mean a lot of things. It could be that they had a number range in mind and they're just trying to get you within that range and nickel and diming you. Or in some times they actually don't have the budget. So as a as a as a software consultant or a software agency, I have to figure out what exactly they mean when they say that's too expensive. If it means that it's actually too expensive, uh, in some cases with smaller companies, they just don't have the budget to pay you, then what you can do is by offering to rescope the initial project with them, to, to reduce the scope, to cut down the requirements, to cut down the, the deliverables, right? If they want, say, a whole entire app de- uh, developed for this project, maybe cut it down by half, right? Cut it down to just one or two pages instead of the entire application, whatever that is. Sometimes, uh, in the other times, maybe they're just nickel-diming you, right? If you're selling enterprises, a lot of the times the purchaser is measured on if they can lower the price. In those cases, you just have to stand your ground, know your worth. Very cool. Very tactical. Uh, I like that there's sort of a, a decision tree there where the, uh, where you're trying to work out what, what the actual issue is. Exactly. How long did it take you to to feel comfortable in that process uh, of negotiating price? Yeah, it, uh, I think I'm still trying to figure it out. I'm always trying. Uh, I'm always learning. But it took me at least six years to get really comfortable into like dissecting, asking the whys, really trying to figure out what the other person is saying when they, for example, tell me no. Wow. That's a, that's quite a long time. If if you had to cut it down to to one key thing or one or two key things that would have made the the biggest difference in that journey, what do you think that would be? First of all, what you need to do is figure out what problem your customer is trying to solve, right? You have to rapidly align on the value 
that the customer wants or the value that you're trying to deliver and what the customer wants. Without that baseline, you'll never be able to negotiate in a way that's satisfactory to both parties. And the way there's many ways for you to figure out what the value or what the what the customer wants. You can literally just simple ask them, say, hey, if 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 you had a magic wand and you can have anything that you want within the next six months, how can I help you make that into a reality? Right? Like I'll ask very, very straightforward, easy to understand questions. Got it. So we're we're really trying to knuckle down on what the um what what the client has in mind. Otherwise, if if you shoot a price that's and the package is not entirely related to what they're after, you'll get some of that pushback. Of course, that's exactly it, right? Uh, it, it's really just about understanding what the customer wants and what they're thinking in their head. Maybe another way to put it is it's just like it's it's basically a poker game. It's just a giant poker game. You're always trying to guess what the other person has in their hand. And the way that you get the value is by guessing correctly. In terms of qualifying the leads then, is there anything that you look out for, especially to work out whether or not they are a client? You mentioned, for example, working with an enterprise client, but is there some other way that you typically use to qualify people as being able to to pay on a value-based project pricing? Yeah. So you'll be surprised how many people don't know what they want. Uh, a lot of early stage startups, especially, they really have no idea what exactly they, they want to be built. They have this vague concept. They have this vague, maybe uh, a wireframe's done. And when you talk to them, they're like, oh, well, we want this. And then two days later, they say, okay, maybe I want this instead. I try to avoid these types of situations. I try to avoid these type of clients. Because there's really no way for you to accurately guess what exactly they want. And when you can't do that, you can't put it down on paper. And when you can't put it on, down on paper, misalignments happen. And a lot of times, pricing actually really helps. When you charge a higher price, you weed out a lot of people that might not want to pay. And there's a lot of these people, right? They, they try to nickel dime you every step of the way. So it's actually a little bit contradictory that when you raise your price, you attract more people that are willing to pay and they're the better quality clients instead of the people who are looking for the lower pricing points. That's such an interesting point in that um, if, if they're not clear about the project in the first place, it's going to be really difficult to sell them on a project-based pricing because you can't exactly, get alignment yeah. and buy-in. Exactly. Exactly. The, wow. Like the worst case for me is just being string, uh, strung long, like on an hourly base. I have to give a lot. I have to be locked into that like hourly work. And at that point, it's no different than having a nine to five job. Right. Is it ever worth trying to salvage those opportunities by saying, hey, look, you don't really know what you want here. How about I help you work that out for this type of price? Or is it just not worth the drama? Yeah, yeah. So there are strategies to do that. Right? If you if you talk to the person, maybe they're actually really smart. You like them. You see a opportunity there. They just don't have that. They just don't have that vision quite figured out yet. Then what I typically do is offer a discovery project. A discovery project typically lasts, uh, let's say, a month long. I'll charge them by the hour. I'll, I'll get started on whatever they needs to be done. 
during that process, I'll help them figure out what exactly a longer term contract will look like, uh, what, what that deliverable looks like. I'll, I'll get to make some money, first of all, and also I'll help them to sell themselves by figuring out what that long term engagement look like. I didn't expect that, that uh, you would charge hourly for that discovery part of the project. Is it because it's just, like you said, so variable, you're going back and forth and, and people are changing their minds? Exactly. Yeah. So you have to protect yourself, right? If you're, uh, if you don't have a value, you don't have a concrete deliverable at the end, and you're just saying, "Hey, I'm being hired for 20 hours a week to do work," then I'm, I'm typically okay with that as an hourly engagement. But the, 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 the cap is that I can walk away anytime, and also it's a time cap, right? I, I try to say, if we do this, it's going to be no longer than one month. I'm not going to be doing this for, let's say, six months or a year. When it comes to finding these types of clients, what channels are you using most of the time? So a lot of developers do this via referrals, uh, via inbound. I actually kind of did a reverse. I, I do. Uh, most of my clients came out uh, came from me directly reaching out to them. I also have a salesperson that handles a lot of reactivation, which means I have I already built up a list of maybe around 100 clients. Every few months, let's say three months, my, my salesperson would reach out to them and see, hey, if you have any new deals coming up and how can we help? So for those net new clients, I try to go to places where they're already, they're already looking for a solution to their problem. I hang out in a lot of uh, communities like uh, Reddit, Discord servers, uh, Slack servers, where developers, managers, CTOs are actively asking questions and trying to solve their problems. So before, when you said you were mainly doing it by outreach, was this warm outreach to, to the 100 former clients or people you've worked with? Uh, or is it to completely fresh audiences? Yeah, so I do a combination of both. My salesperson does most of the warm outreach, like reactivating my existing clients. I do a lot of uh, cold outreach. Well, so I don't, when people think cold outreach, it's like you're, you have an email list and you're emailing them or you have a phone list and you're calling them and the, the person on the other end have no idea who you are. I think that's a low leverage type of work. I think that's it becomes a numbers game. And I think it's not the correct way of doing these kind of outreach. What I typically do is, like I mentioned, I hang out in these communities and I would just look for opportunities where somebody is asking for a solution that piques my interest or that I'm already know exactly how to solve. And I try to provide value. I try to answer those questions as clearly as possibly, as best as I can, and start a conversation that way. So by the time that I solve their first initial problem, I already know that they're going to have 10 other problems that comes up. And that's where I kind of sell myself as a end-to-end solution person for their entire problem. Ah, very smart. So for example, in a place like Reddit, you have people saying, hey, I've got this kind of technical problem. What do people think? You'll jump in. You'll start building that relationship by being helpful. And then that may become a sales opportunity in the future. Exactly. Exactly. 
let, let me give you a concrete example. Uh, the, the thing that I do in uh, Slack servers. I'm part of uh, this Slack server for Stripe. Stripe is a payment processor where like software companies use to enable payments. A lot of people are building marketplaces on Stripe. They use Stripe's API to build marketplaces. And I've built marketplaces multiple times. So whenever I see a question related to that side of the API, I know all the problems that they're going to face. And I come in and I pitch the idea that I can get your marketplace launched in half of the time. Wow, fantastic. And you mentioned before as well that your, uh, that your salesperson is going out to these existing warm leads or, or older former accounts. Right. Is it a certain profile that you have worked with in the past that makes it so that they're more likely to have another project? For example, are you targeting often agencies or versus directly to the enterprise? Yeah. So my ideal customer profile are venture-backed startups somewhere around the seed to series B stage. They typically have raised around $6.5 million to, let's say, $20 million. The, the cycle of these startups has always been every 12 to 18 months, they need to raise, they need to raise more venture capital. This is the way that they show growth. And there's really only a few ways for you to show growth at these kind of uh, VC-backed startups. Uh, one of them is build new products. The other way is hire new people. So I reach out to these companies every once in a while when I know that they're looking, for, uh, looking to raise money, that they need to build new products, that they need to hire new people. Both of those things are extremely time-consuming and very hard to do, especially hiring new people hiring new uh, full-time employees, right? Typically a fundraising round will last, let's say, four to six months. To hire a, a good senior developer can take you anywhere between six to 12 months. So that's where I kind of step in and say, hey, you know exactly what I'm capable of. You've worked with me before. To supplement some of that growth trajectory, I'll come in, I'll build the product. You can show that you're growing to your investors when you're raising. Use me as a resource to help you grow the company. Wow. It's a, a, a franchise client, one that, that keeps giving. That's right. That's, that's the goal. <laughs> Was this something that you had seen from having worked you know, as a founder yourself in the industry? Or was, was this sort of a group that you stumbled into having tried a, a bunch of different types of clients? Yeah, that's, that's, it's the former. It's from my experience of building products and trying to raise venture capital. I, I spent a lot of time initially those first few years uh, trying to build a product. Uh, we, we raised a little bit of money. Uh, we ran out of the money. We tried to raise more money. So like I understood that process very, intricate, uh, very intricately. So that's kind of where I got the idea that I, I know the cycles of pain that venture-backed startups have. Before you mentioned that you spent about 70% of your time doing business development or, or thereabouts, what, what did your sort of routine look like then? And I, I'm curious, how many Reddit and Slack groups are you a part of? Yeah, yeah. Right around like uh, 2019, 2020, I, I, I spent a lot of times doing these kind of outreach. My daily routine literally just looked like hanging out 
in these communities, reaching out to people, trying to answer as many uh, questions in a valuable way as possible. It took up a lot of my time because I, I didn't have a lot of uh, trust. I didn't have a lot of credibility. So I tried to go out of my way to, to help my clients. And you mentioned building credibility or, or, or trust. Apart from the interrelational aspect, was there another way that you built that credibility? For example, you know, coming on podcasts or doing guest blogs or anything like this? It has to go back to what we talked about, pricing and negotiation again. Building trust is really just about learning how to negotiate in a way that both parties walk away feeling like they both won. It took me a couple of years to get out of like um, trying to lowball my uh, offer, uh, lowball my proposal to land more clients to a model where I'm coming in, I'm asserting my expertise, and I'm letting that negotiation process naturally happen and not shy away from it. And having both parties at the end feeling like they both won. That is probably the single biggest turning point in, in, in my sales process. And I was really lucky to find a salesperson who shared those values and we kind of hit it off right away from that. So for people you see going out and trying to do the same thing as you, what are some of the mistakes that they're making trying to find new clients? Yeah, they're just not trying new things. Uh, they're, they're following advices from people that are, let's say, 10 steps ahead of them. I see this across social media. I see this across uh, everything. Is that the people who are selling you how to do something, they are coming from a perspective that are, they've made it. Right? Like, for example, I will probably not the best source of advice for, let's say, an 18-year-old college student that's trying to get into the game right now. I'm so far ahead of them that my advice might not uh, be the most relevant. Instead, they should look to their peers. They should find other 18-year-olds, other college students, and learn from each other. What I, can, what I can provide the most advice on is, let's say, a successful agency founder who are around the 350,000 mark. Right? They're maybe a step or two behind me. I can give them direct advice on how to uh, how to get to where I am today. So that's kind of like a lot of mistakes that I see is wherever you're wherever you're in your stage of development, instead of trying to buy courses, buy books from people who are making tens of millions of dollars, what you should instead is find the people that are one step or two steps ahead of you. And try to talk to those people, learn from those people instead. Very practical. I, I think everybody's probably noticed that themselves when you you read a book. It's written by a very famous business person. You're like, yeah, these are great business lessons, but I'm, I'm not sure how I can use this to get the next client. I think that might be what you're suggesting. Exactly, right? Like the problem that Elon Musk is facing is completely irrelevant to, to somebody uh, in my shoes. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. So looking ahead, what is your plan for the agency over the next 12 months? It's something that I'm actively thinking about and uh, asking for help about. So uh, I mentioned this, I 
I'm acutely aware of the flywheel effect in my agency. I've hit a, uh, a ceiling of sorts. Really, the only way for me to scale my agency is by going horizontal, which is hiring more devs, or by selling, going upstream and selling enterprise. Neither of those things I am very, neither of those things I really want to do, just based on my personality or, uh, or my, my uh, interest. So the thing that I'm exploring right now is productization. There's quite a bit of resource out there already. Uh, for example, DesignJoy. Uh, there's a, this name, this person named uh, Brett. He has productized their design agency to one and a half million dollars a year by kind of fine-tuning his offer to, uh, to to his ideal customer base. He he's doing it in a design perspective. It's a little bit more nuanced and it's a little bit harder to do as a developer to productize whatever service you're offering. I talked to a lot of developers and at the end of the day, I feel like if we focus too much on the service, the, the technical aspect, it just becomes a nine to five job, right? You're, you're just turning over tickets. You're just doing, uh, doing tasks for the customer, even though that you're not getting stuck in meetings all day you're at the end of the day, you're just becoming another employer, employee. So I'm actively trying to explore new avenues to productize. I've actually, I listened to uh, your podcast from yesterday, from Kevin, for Kevin. He actually completely opened up my view of how to do that. Um, I've actually, just literally last night, I figured out what I should do in terms of uh, productization. Wow, I appreciate that. Happy to hear that you that you listened to that episode. Is there anywhere that we could go to sort of follow this journey of you productizing the service? Absolutely. Uh, I'm active on Twitter or X. Uh, you can follow me there. My handle is uh, PSU, P-X-U-E. And I'll be, I'll be building in public, inspired by Kevin and all the different people that I follow. Fantastic. And for anybody who wants to go and learn how to do an agency like yours, probably more so in the software space, is there any resources that you have or essays that you could share? Absolutely. So I'm also working on a playbook to help other agency founders catch up, catch up to me. I'm, I, the, the reason I'm doing that is, like I said, the best way for me to learn and build is by finding other agency founders that are in similar uh, one step or two uh, two steps ahead or behind me. So I'm writing this playbook to it's to help agency founder go from zero to five hundred thousand dollars a year. In it, I break down every step of the way to land your first clients, to negotiate your process, almost everything that we talked on uh, this podcast. Fantastic! I'll be sure to put a link in the show notes. Otherwise, Paul, a real pleasure, and uh, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Ben. 